0: You can spend more seconds each day with a sense of, okay, I matter, my suffering, my stress, my weariness matters. I'm going to bring compassion. I'm going to bring a warmth to it, even if they're not bringing warmth to me. And even if that warmth was missing when I was a child, and I'm going to let those little moments land, that changes your whole day. And it starts feeling like there's more of a shock absorber between you and the world around you.
1: This week is all about relationships with our partners, our kids, our extended family. Hello, setting boundaries with your mother-in-law and with ourselves. Dr. Rick Hansen is a psychologist. He is a senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and a New York Times bestselling author. He's also the founder of the Global Compassion Coalition and the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom as well as the co-host of the Being Well podcast. His latest book, Making Great Relationships, is a comprehensive guide to fostering healthy, effective, and fulfilling relationships of all kinds. And I'm so excited for you to hear the incredible wisdom he has to share. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. So we have a really special guest today. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Rick Hansen onto the podcast. You um, you just came out with a really amazing new book, Making Great Relationships. And I was like, when I was reading this book, I was like, there are so many things that are so relevant to parenthood. And so I'm like, can't wait to dive in. And But I first just want to say like, welcome. And maybe you could introduce yourself and share a little bit about like how this book came to be.
0: Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. And uh, as we were talking just before we started, personally, I just feel this deep moral commitment to children, uh, to parents, particularly the person who's doing all of the bearing and most of the rearing much of the time, which is to say mothers. You want to change the world for the better in one generation, make taking care of mothers the number one priority in public policy worldwide. Boom. You're done. So anyway, I'm really happy to be here. It's an honor. Uh, My book comes from, um, oh, I'd say 50 years really of being a counselor one way or another and uh, 40 years of marriage and doing a lot of business consulting, raising two kids to adulthood, a lot of stuff. And I was really interested in the practicalities. What can we actually do? So many of us feel stuck, right? Or we try something... We say it, then they respond, and then we don't know what to do next. And this also includes very much what goes, what helps things go well with our children, too. So there's a lot of practical stuff. And I really wanted to zero in on empowering people. We all have the power with what we think and what we say, what we do with our mind and our mouth many times a day, basically, that can make all of our relationships better, including in situations in which they don't change, but we change inside. So we're less aggravated by what's happening. We don't take it so personally. Maybe we've taken a step back in some ways. So we've made a better relationship, even if they aren't cooperating very much. Anyway, so that's the territory. And I look forward to a getting down to earth with you about totally. practical nightmare scenarios that's my favorite <laughs> right
1: well it was funny cuz when i was learning about this book i was like okay this book is about like adult relationships but i also think so much of the the things that ha- create healthy communication yeah. in adult you know mutually yeah. responsible adult relationships like they apply to like our relationships, they're kids too, but like you got to tweak it a little bit because it's a little bit more one-sided because the yeah. skill sets don't match up.
0: That's right. You're not dealing with an adult in a little body, which has really? been a breakthrough in psychology. Kids were considered to be adults in little bodies until really this, you know, the last century, uh, you know, the 1900s onward, research was showing, no, there's tremendous change over time. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's like so critical because I think, If we think that our, if we overshoot our estimation of our child's cognitive abilities, we are going to get really frustrated. And I feel like you do a really good job of explaining this as well. And like our interpretation of an exchange, whether it's with our partner or our parents or our child, has a huge impact on how we then show up.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So having developmentally appropriate expectations is like key to getting
0: it right. Oh, yeah. And to do that, you know, it's like they say on the airlines, put your own oxygen mask on first. My first book, Mother Nurture, wrote it 20 plus years ago. And um, it was really about the importance of filling up your own cup because mothers in particular, parents too, but mothers in particular, uh, including in our society, pour out, pour out, pour out. While being stressed, stressed, stressed Mm -hmm. with very little replenishment, very Mm -hmm. little opportunity um, to sort of refuel themselves and repair, right? That's not Mother Nature's plan. Mother Nature's plan is to raise children in a super strong community of 50 people you live with for most of your life. That's how humans Mm -hmm. walk the earth for 97% of the time our species has been here. So it's really different today and therefore it's extremely important to... Do what you can, body, mind, and relationships, to um, refuel yourself. Because then, obviously, it's so different. There you are. You're with your kid. You're trying to get him into a car seat. One of the most Mm -hmm. stressful things known to humankind, right? Or settling (laughs) a sibling squirrel. That's right up there as well. There you are. We all know it. When we feel like we're running on empty, it's much harder to be patient. It's much harder Mm -hmm. to not just... Lash out one way or another. Um, on the other hand, when we've gotten a decent, nice sleep, when we're not already mad at our partner for dropping the ball yet again today, when you know there's an underlying mood of basic well-being with some frazzledness, certainly around the edges, then we're much more likely to be skillful, to have access to what we know, and to have the capacity like you were implying a moment ago, to see the little being behind the eyes. That precious little vulnerable, innocent being is deeper than the tantruming that's happening, the flailing, the resisting, you know, the unreasonable demands. Mommy, I hate you. Don't go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? yes. There's a being behind that. And we're much more able to see the being behind the eyes if, if we feel already fed ourselves.
1: Yeah. And I feel like that's such a hard task for parents on a lot of levels. Because one, I hear you're talking about like, if we have a filled up, if I have our needs filled, we are so much more able to access the empathy and the perspective taking and the tools. Yeah. But parents have a particularly challenging ability to fill their cups because of the demands of like good night's That's sleep, right. pretty hard to come by, yeah. you know, feeding yourself nutritious food, sometimes kind of hard to come by if yep. you're, you know, running ragged. So, yeah. and I think, you know, that it doesn't mean we can't do things to reduce mm-hmm. our vulnerabilities. We have to, we got to get yeah. creative and scrappy. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it it's important Technology, like I think, parents oftentimes are just a more vulnerable population. Sometimes from from Mm -hmm. how much our nervous system and our bodies and our brains and our environments are taxing, and how stimulating working with little kids, being little kids is. But I think there are a lot of strategies that you teach that, like, Mm -hmm. even if you're starting kind of behind the starting line because you you can't get eight hours of sleep or you're not able to like fill up every your cup the way you might want to, that like you can still sort of reduce those vulnerabilities or keep the perspective in the moment? Yeah. Like what would you recommend if you're already sure. kind of running on empty?
0: Well, to a fault, and my kids tease me about this all the time, you know, I'm a list maker. It's sort of, the mind is so complex. That's part of what fascinates us, right? Mm-hmm. It's a mess. So it's really helpful to have a little structure, a little checklist. So I'm going to, here's like four, okay? Perfect. Number Number one, get on your own side. Be loyal to you. And it sounds so obvious, but in my personal experience clinically, 50% at least, primarily women, of the people that I've worked with, were not already on their own side. Mm -hmm. They were not loyal to themselves, fundamentally. They were loyal to others, fundamentally. And if everything was going great for the rest of the whole wide world, maybe there'd be some focus on themselves. So just Mm -hmm. that shift alone. And that shift can happen deep in your innermost being, doesn't take a lot of time, but it's sort of as if you're taking a stand for yourself, like you would would take a stand for a friend. It's Mm -hmm. not that you're making yourself better than others, but there's this fundamental feeling that you matter. It's really basic. And that's hard for girls and women often to claim because they're socialized into not mattering. You don't matter as much as others. Their needs come first. Your job is to take care of their needs. And there's a lot of different kinds of things that happen, including forms of punishment, when girls and women assert their own needs. Yeah. Right? So numero uno, try to find a sense that you matter and a feeling of being loyal to yourself. Uh, Morally, uh, and in a way that you said kind of muscular, scrappy. I like the word moxie, scrappy. You're on your own side. Okay. That's number one. Number two, compassion for yourself. There's so much research on the power of self-compassion for lowering stress, for uh, buffering against self-criticism. There's so much self-criticism that parents, again, especially mothers, are dealing with, including external criticism. You're feeding your child that, or mm-hmm. why aren't you feeding your child that? Uh, you know, yeah. uh, or you know, you're supposed to do A, B, C, and D, and also just. Uh, I don't know what, you know, have this amazing life that comes right out of the Facebook pages, which are the highlight reels of other people's lives, that because yeah. that's what they're sharing. Okay, so compassion for yourself. And again, it's not wallowing in self-pity. It's simply, oh, I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm worn out. And then not just have indifference toward that or blame, like, oh, it's your fault that you're tired. If you just did more exercise, you know, or, well, other people did it. What are you talking about? No. Bringing a warmth and a kindness, a supportiveness, a a warm wishing that it wasn't so hard for you. Simple stuff. Yeah. 10 seconds here, half a minute there. That's all we're talking about. Compassion for yourself is not, it's it's where we start, but it's not where we end. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research that shows that compassion for For oneself makes people more resilient and more ambitious. So it's a really good thing compassion for yourself. Third thing, take in the good along the way. In other words, as a neuropsychologist with a background in evolution, it's so clear that we need to slow down for a breath or two multiple times a day and let good moments land rather than race on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And routinely, Something has happened that is the basis for a genuine feeling of slowing down a little bit, calming a little bit, a sweet moment with the child, connecting with a partner, looking out a window, getting something done. Finally, the kids are in bed. (laughs) Right there is an opportunity to stay with that experience for a breath or two or longer, literally to start to hardwire the residues of that lived experience into your brain so that increasingly you build up traits of calm, self-worth, gratitude, feeling loved, feeling loving, you build it up over time and everyone has the power to do that in this, in the middle of full catastrophe living, you know, with, when yeah. a, you know, a three-year-old, if you have two kids, that's when life, as you know, it is totally all over, right? That's when that second <laughs> yeah, kid do. arrives, you're just, it's done. But anyway, when, whether you have one or two or three or whatever that number might be, we all have opportunities half a dozen times a day to slow down and take in the good. That's number yeah. three. And number four Even though I'm a software guy in the sense that I'm into the mind, one thing Mm -hmm. I've really come to appreciate is the hardware, is the body. And I've just seen so many situations, partly as a result of the medical system and sexism and all the rest of that, uh, women tend to, mothers tend to put aside their own physical needs. They kind of skip a checkup or they'll delay something or they won't pay attention to some nagging condition like their Mm -hmm. body aches more. And there's a lot of research that shows that um, a major factor in increasing inflammatory conditions in the body, autoimmune conditions in the body, um, disorders of other kinds is the number of children you have. So I just want to not bang on about it too much, but I just want to say, take your physical health seriously. If you feel really run down and the medical establishment kind of pats you on the head in a patronizing way, as it often does, say, no, something's not right here. And technically, I might be within normal limits, WNL, within normal limits, Mm -hmm. the normal range. But let me tell you, the way the normal range is calculated is tip is either from the 15th to the 85th percentile. Mm -hmm. That means that you could be at the 20th percentile in iron or thyroid function and they would pat you on the head and send you out the door. And maybe for you that's okay or maybe it's not okay because you're run down. Actually, WNL is often... Technically, two standard deviations away from the mean, which is essentially from the fifth to the 95th percentile.
1: Interesting, yeah. You could be at the
0: 90th percentile on some kind of inflammatory reactivity in your body that's making you feel achy all the time and wearing down your mood because inflammation is depressing literally neurologically inside your brain with through cytokine messengers and so forth. You know, you could be at the 90th percentile on inflammatory vulnerability and they pat you on the head and send you out the door. So it's being an advocate for yourself and, you know, not going crazy, being, you know, finding your own path, what makes sense to you, but taking your body seriously. That's my fourth suggestion.
1: I love that. And I think that there's a lot of permission there to be tuned in. Right. To, to make noise. Right. To say something, even though you medical system yeah. are patting me on the head saying, I'm fine. I don't feel okay. I'm going to be the squeaky wheel. I'm going to advocate for myself. Yeah. And it reminds something you said earlier too, about how like oftentimes girls and women, but a lot of times kids in general are punished for assertiveness yeah. because it's considered aggressive yeah. or it's not cooperative or you're not sharing. Like how often are kids told like, you can't say that's mine. You have to share it or, you know, say no, thank you. If you don't like something like, I mm-hmm. think I am a firm believer of like teaching kids clear, articulate, articulate, assertiveness skills to say, like, yeah. and especially little kids who don't have complex language to be able to just say no, yeah. or I don't like that or yeah. go away if they need yeah. space. So like that gets a lot of times shut down and punished or trained out of kids, which teaches them don't make your needs known. And then the parents then see all these kind of like side seeping out behaviors because they're chronically not able to like assert their needs. And so they get frustrated and they like, you know, pull their brother's hair or something (laughs) seemingly out of the blue, but they, you know, they're sick of having to share.
0: That's totally right. And, and the thing that you and I were just talking about here, you know, getting on your own side, uh, self-compassion, taking in the good along the way and starting to, you know, take your body seriously, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it establishes an immediate shift that's within the person's power. You don't need the cooperation mm-hmm. of your partner or your, or your nightmare boss or the public health system. On your own, you can spend more seconds each day With a sense of, okay, I matter. I'm trying to take care of myself here too. My suffering, my stress, my weariness matters. I'm going to bring compassion. I'm going to bring a warmth to it, even if they're not bringing warmth to me. And even if that warmth was missing when I was a child, I'm Mm -hmm. going to bring that warmth to me. And I'm going to let those little moments land that changes your whole day. Suddenly your day is different. And it starts feeling like there's more of a shock absorber between you and the world around you. The kids are doing what they're doing. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, The dirty little secret of parenting is that kids are annoying sometimes. (laughs) They're also incredibly lovable. (laughs) Hello. And uh, many partners are clueless. We haven't even gotten there yet. Uh, But all that can be happening around you. But inside you, there's more of this shock absorber. And inside you, there's more of this sort of inner refuge, this core of resilient well-being. That you're literally hardwiring increasingly into your own nervous system. It yeah. So everything. would it
1: be correct to say that even though your book is about making great relationships with others, yeah. that like in order for that to be possible, there's like a foundational sort of relationship with yourself that you need to nurture
0: first. That's well said. And you know, the book is structured. It's got these 50 very, very short chapters that are you can dip in or out of it anywhere you want. And in six parts, the first of the six parts is Befriend Yourself friend yourself. Yeah. Because that's the foundation of everything else, including as we get to partners, uh, asserting yourself effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with, and I
1: think, you know, it's yeah. so funny because I'm always like, there's so many parallels when you're talking about parenting. When we're talking about in the context of parenting, when you talk about something the parent does for themselves, there's always, in my mind, a parallel of what the parent is inadvertently or directly or indirectly doing for the kid, right? If you are taking the time to nurture Mm -hmm. your relationship to yourself, to be your friend, to listen to your body and to advocate for your needs and to take in moments of gratitude and, you know, in front of your child... They are going to learn those same skills. They are going to learn when mom values her body, her time, her needs, her pleasure in the moment. Mm-hmm. I can do that too. When I'm a grown up, I'm allowed to do that, and I think yeah. that's a very like cycle breaking concept.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Exactly. If it's, I mean, you, we do it for for our own sake. We also do it for the sake of others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all connected. We're all interconnected. Yeah. So yeah. It, it it's like, a, it's like a twofer. You work on yourself, your kid's going to benefit. That's it. <laughs> so yeah. Talk to me about the parent relationship. Like the, what do we do? Like you've got a lot of gems when it comes to like addressing conflict, resolving conflict, asking for what you need in a way that another person can hear it. This is probably really relevant to like co-parents, whether you're like two people who are trying to parent a child together, you are two human beings who are sometimes going to do that differently. And that's going to create conflict at times. Like what are some things that people can think about, do to support the relationship with the person you're raising your kids with?
0: Yeah. And, and that's an area with huge issues. I mean, when I, um, when we became parents, uh, I, was also, I was in grad school at the time. So I was you know learning about psychology and all the rest of that. And some of the statistics are just shocking. So I'll just speak about America here. Um, something like one in six children will never experience um, living, growing up in the context of a stable marriage or the equivalent because their parents will separate before the kid is 18 months old. Some, like one in six, uh, the numbers, one of the the greatest risk factors for this is about marriage and a lot of the research is on heterosexual couples. There might probably be somewhat similar findings. I don't know, but probably same sex couples, uh, to the extent that categories of gender is meaningful. In any case, uh, the greatest typical average risk for the stability of a marriage is the arrival of children. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. My wife and I had a really strong relationship, but like, but like many relationships, we kind of operated in separate spheres, and we didn't have to agree. But suddenly, that child arrives; you have to agree because you can't just split the difference. It's not like King Solomon cut the kid in (laughs) half, right? You know, no, no, it's one old child. Uh, Do you spank or not? Do you give sweets or not? How much TV or not? You know, how much time in childcare or not? Uh, What's what do you? How do you share the load? Uh, Mm -hmm. And there are three kinds of loads i know you've thought of, talked about this um technically there's the time load the stress load and the mind load the executive mm-hmm. load and there are families in which uh, the couples really are roughly equal time on task uh, even if the task might be different uh, maybe one person's a primary breadwinner one person's a primary caregiver but when the breadwinner comes home you know they continue sharing equally but the stress load is not shared You know, one Mm -hmm. parent, uh, you know, does things like mows the lawn, listening to rock and roll, having a beer, while the other parent is trying to get the kids bathed and ready for bed and settling them down, which is more stressful. And then there's the mind load. I mean, I got to admit it. I'm a guy. Okay. Uh, Our daughter would have ear infections when she was little. And I would go through my mental checklist because I I really did show up as a parent. I did not want to be Fred Flintstone. And I did not want (laughs) to give my wife the basis for any complaint because I grew up in a fault finding home. You know, I'd had enough of that. Um, But there were still still complaints (laughs) that were very legitimate. But anyway, I'd go through my checklist. Well, we've done this, this, this for Laurel, and we're going to take her to the doctor tomorrow and I'm really sorry and I'd fall asleep. My wife would be lying awake all night long because she just had that kind of emotional connection. So the mind load. Mm -hmm. Okay. A lot of research shows just on the time load alone that in America, the average couple after kids come along, a heterosexual couple, the mom is on task 15 to 20 hours a week more than her partner is. Whether or not she's drawing a paycheck, that's a huge inequity, huge Mm -hmm. inequity. And the stress load and the mind load also, on average, has greater inequities as well. These are huge issues. Okay, so that's the setup, right?
1: Yeah. And
0: you know it well. You want to jump in?
1: All too well. Well, it's so funny because I think... You know, and it's—I don't, don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my personal situation is a little interesting because my husband is the primary parent in a lot mm. of ways in our dynamic yeah. in our relationship because I work full time and he works part time and does works with the kids the rest of the time, and because I have that access to a much more mm. equitable or shared parental yeah. load. It's different in our family, and I'm so grateful for Mm. having a husband who finds joy in that and, like, sees so much value in it and, like, loves it. Yeah. Um, And yet I still find—so this is not to bash my awesome husband, who really does carry his fair share probably more sometimes of the time load. Yeah. But I don't know if it's a maternal thing. I don't know if it's an anxiety thing. But I am always— feeling tremendous guilt. I'm feeling tremendous anxiety or like worry or like just rumination about like, what is happening next with the kids? What do we need to figure out with this? What's going right? What's going wrong? What's, Mm. and, and maybe it's because I'm not the primary time giver. I have another layer of like tremendous guilt about that as a Mm. mom. So it's, I feel very personally, I can really personally relate to a lot of stuff you're talking about, as well as I see it all the time when I work with
0: families. If he were more stressed, if he authentically, or maybe just kind of playing a little bit, were acting really stressed about how the kids are doing, would that help you worry less?
1: Oh man, I think it would stress me out more.
0: Oh, really? That's interesting. Because then
1: I would feel contagious. Like I feel like that stress would be contagious. Uh I wonder too, but perhaps, I think I see where you're going, but I wonder if like, it's, I wonder if it's, do I want to see him more stressed? So I feel like my stress is, is, is there's parity in the stress or would I feel better if I felt like he acknowledged my stress? And I think I would like, in my mind to see him say, wow, I think there's a lot you have to hold just because of your emotional attachment and the load of um, the emotional and, and sort of mind load that you carry.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting and touching. Uh, part of it is sometimes when we're in the foxhole and we're, or we see a threat because we stress around threats and it's about the future, right? So we see this potential threat. And if other people don't seem... Stressed about it, we feel let down by them, and we worry that they don't see the issue either. So, I that was kind of where I was starting. You're naming a a separate thing, which is uh, what I call intimate friendship. So, there's the teamwork aspect, and then there's the intimate friendship, and of the totality of the intimate friendship, a small fraction of it is a romantic, erotic aspect, but that total sense of friendship with an ally who can see you. And goes, wow, 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 sorry, you're, you're really worried about this. I get it. You're connected with them in a really deep way. It's being witnessed. It's being seen. And I think that tends to go out the window, that kind of empathic attunement, to use the psych lingo, uh, tends to really go out the window. It's so interesting to me that, you know, people come together, they become a couple often, and whether they're married or not, because they're, you know, they're tuned into each other. And Mm -hmm. they, they prize each other. And yet over time, that quality of feeling that you're, that the other person is really tuned into you and is cherishing and prizing you rather than kind of taking you for granted or frankly being pretty disgruntled with you, that tends to fade over time, which is really sad. So I think for me, one of the things to focus on is uh, to the extent that we can do it authentically to go to the maximum. We can on both uh, really letting the other person land in your heart Mm. and separate that landing in your heart from your gripes about them. Yeah. You're not giving up your gripes. You're going to get to them. It's counterintuitive, but you're going to be much more effective in getting traction and Mm -hmm. lasting results when you do get to your gripes. If you start... By getting in touch with yourself and then getting in touch with your partner. Yeah. There's so much evidence for that. And we just know it's true. Even though it's counterintuitive because we want to come in guns blazing, I've got Mm -hmm. my list, right? (laughs) Uh, Slow it down, tune in, see the being behind their eyes, you know. And then on the basis of that, then you can kind of connect, kind of talk. So I I think about that too. And then I also think about... um, Just the realness of uh, making agreements after kids come along, even if they're just implicit agreements, including around things like sharing the load. Like, for example, one of the weird little exercises I would have couples do after they have kids is for each person to track their time really honestly for a week. Mm -hmm. And don't change anything. Just tell the truth. So get a little, little Excel spreadsheet or something. Keep it super simple. It should not take more than five minutes a day. Otherwise, it's too complicated. And every 15 minutes, that's your time. And then each column is a different activity, right? Like dressing or you know, driving to work or doing stuff with the kids or talking with the teachers or coordinating with other parents or housework or, you know, billing by the hour in your psychotherapy practice, whatever it might be. And then at the end of the week, take a look at it. I find that it's routinely shocking. People Mm -hmm. are stunned at how that extra 20 minutes here in the morning and that extra hour and a half in the evening, the extra hour or two on Saturday and Sunday each really adds up to something big over time. And being grounded in facts can really cut through a lot of stuff about um, equity, because as research shows, the typical father these days is doing less than he thinks he's doing, but he's doing more than his wife thinks he's doing.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: and, so and it's so, also
1: about aligning your yeah, taking the goggles fact off. That factoring is a really bit.
0: useful, and then get down to um, concreteness. Uh, You know, a lot of people argue at the level of, well, first of all, they complain about the past, but they don't make agreements for the future. Mm -hmm. That goes round and round and round. It's just much different and much better to, you know, be able to uh, uh, say what you need to say about the past, but there are so many dead-end arguments that happen about the past. Plus, you can't change anything. The future is the undiscovered country, right? Uh, Quote a Star Trek subtitle. Uh, anyway, uh, some kind of poem or phrase The Undiscovered Country. That's full of possibility from now yeah. on to so make agreements going forward and to try to make them around things that are concrete. Like, how are we actually going to spend our time? What tasks are we actually going to do? deal with differently? What problems that are recurring are we going to pre-solve? Rather than vague stuff like, well, I just want more help. Or I right. just want you to do your share. Or can we just be nicer? What does that yeah. actually mean? Okay, yeah. so, what did, so that's a bit of a riff on teamwork and agreements. In my book, there's so much about the details of how to actually pin people down, how to deal with people who won't, uh, who are very slippery. A lot of, frankly, men are slippery around family agreements. They're quite prepared to be very pinned down at work, but when it comes to the home, it's somehow a weird, different category. It's not mm-hmm. fair. So what do you do yeah. about that? So yeah. What do you think yeah, about it know. So and
1: It's funny. You know what I was thinking? I'm like, okay, yeah, husband sometime, definitely. I'm also thinking I get a lot of people asking me about like my mother-in-law or like my yeah. the, like, grandma or, you know, people, it's like, How do you, like, a lot of, like, setting boundaries. I I mean, I think you you got to figure out in the nuclear family, like, how to have communication and be really clear about what you need. I love what you say about, like, you need to name it explicitly in a simple, concrete way. Like, you can't just say, I need you to do more or I need you to be nicer. You need to say, like, this is exactly what I think I need going forward. How can we help? How can we work together to make that happen? What does it look like specifically? And I think that's so important. And then I also think like the, a lot of like the effective communication skills are really helpful with like extended family and p- feeling like I'm, ass- I'm assuming that most parents have some alignment in their value, not always, but quite often um, have some alignment in their values. They might not have the same standards. They might not execute everything the same way. There's work there, but the values are probably similar, but you can have very different values from other generations and that can cause tons of pain and conflict and for both sides, right? Like, I don't think most grandparents who are, or in-laws who are, you know, seemingly judging the way that a, a, a couple is raising their kids are doing it because they're just want to be judgy. I think it's, they see that and they feel like, Ooh, is that a referendum on how I did it? Cause I didn't do it that way. Are you calling me out by doing it differently? Are you saying I wasn't a good enough parent? Like I think there's a lot of pain that comes from the critical micromanaging and intrusiveness that some, some extent like, you know, grandparents or in-laws can, 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 can do and then, of course, the parents have to be able to say, like, hey, I don't, this is not how I'm going to do it. It's not a referendum on you. It's just I have different information today than you had.
0: Oh, it's, it's a huge issue. And, um, you know, in my, our family, uh, my mom in particular, very loving person who communicated love by helping people to improve and to do it better <laughs> <right>? <laughs> which started to drive my wife crazy i had been you know more used to it i kind of ignored it it rolled off my back but it was not good we had to really do something and i i finally actually had to ha- have a conversation with my mom in which i said mom um love you all good and from now on notice i put in a thing about the future from now on could you not give any ed- evaluations Or advice, unless I specifically ask for it. She said, Oh, I don't do that, Rick. (laughs) And I said, Well, that's great. Then there won't be a problem. (laughs) And then I just watched her for the next hour. I was visiting at home. We were just hanging out. She kept wanting to give advice. She kept wanting Mm -hmm. to uh, suggest a better way. And then she would catch herself, right? And that was the beginning of a real turnaround there. Uh, one thing I've kind of seen around that is that sometimes we ask for what we need. So we, we frame it as a vulnerable request, Uh right? Initially, uh, it may eventually get to the point of just simply a matter of fact statement. Like if you keep talking with me in that way, I'm going to hang up the phone. That's if you have to becomes matter of fact, but starting out with a vulnerable, heartfelt, you know, it doesn't mean that you're spilling your guts on the table or you're blaming yourself. You know, a, a communication with dignity and gravity that's framed as a request while knowing that if they don't fulfill the request, there may be consequences. There may be yeah. consequences. It's not that you're threatening, it's just that you reserve your rights. Right. So then you yeah. go forward. Sometimes what will happen is that people will blow you off or, you know, blah, 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 but they change. They actually got the message, it actually did mm-hmm. sink in. I would have two kind of suggestions from the standpoint now. of health. I don't know how old your kids are or the age of the kids, you know, most of your listeners here. Ours are 35 and 32. One thing I've seen is both in marriages, relationships broadly and with uh, relatives is seemingly is that fairly little things that happen early on can mm-hmm. cast a shadow for the next 30 years and can create a lot of trouble going down the road. So I think it's really helpful early in your relationship, if the actual divorce rate really is about two out of three, when you take into account not just the 50% of legal marriages that go through a legal divorce, but legal marriages that become a functional divorce, or mm-hmm. relationships that were not married, and yet we're functionally married. They owned property, they raised children, and they separated, well, one in three chance of staying together. And is probably uh, lowered uh, slightly for people who have children together. So I don't say that to freak people out, but yeah. in kind of an old school way, we have work to do. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean walking on eggshells, but it means being really thoughtful uh, about um, the impact on our marriage or relationship of things that get said or balls that get dropped demands to get placed, you know, take the long view. And also with in-laws, um, is it that big a deal if they give your child a smoothie from 7-Eleven once? Do you need to really go to war with them about it? Maybe you do, because that child's got a is diabetic, and that was a nearly fatal event. Okay, maybe you do need to talk about that. But I just kind of want to introduce that, even though I'm big on assertiveness and all the rest of that just some thoughtfulness for the Mm long-term impact of especially negative emotion, tone. Tone is a lot what lands, you know, getting all upset about it, uh, personalizing it, taking it personally or making it personal on the other side.
1: Yeah. A lot of, a lot of like mindful awareness of how big of a, how big of a task is this to pick? Yeah. Like how much is it my job to change what's happening here? Or yeah. is it my preference? Or mm. is it just a wish? You know, yeah. like how, how critical is it that I make a change? Sometimes it's funny. Cause I talk about this a lot with people when we, when I talk about setting boundaries, whether it's with like my patients or with, with parents. And it's, I think you kind of have to decide is something an internal boundary? Like, do Mm -hmm. I need to just sort of say, Ooh, that's her stuff. I don't need to take that in. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's an internal boundary I'm setting with myself. It's personal. No one needs to participate in order for me to set that personal boundary. When, you know, my, my mom or my mother-in-law or my neighbor starts to tell me about how cold my children's toes look when I'm walking them, you know, I'm just going to say that's their stuff. They're not used to this and I'm going to, and they have trouble holding it in, right? That's an internal yeah. boundary. Kind of like the, I'm rubber, you're glue sort of thing. And then uh-huh. the external boundary is when you actually need the person's cooperation to assert the boundary, right? Like I need you to do this or I need you to yeah. stop doing this and how you, how assertive and how, you know, direct you are in your ask can be dependent on lots of factors, right? Yeah. Um, But then there's also like concrete physical boundaries. And that usually comes after you've had to set the external boundary repeatedly and it's repeatedly disrespected. Then you have to say, can I be around this person in this capacity this frequently? What is the impact? Do I need to sort of create a physical boundary where I don't see this person as much anymore? And I think there isn't like a right or a wrong and you don't always have to go in that order. I think it's just kind of like you are the only person who's going to know which boundary is going to work for me in this moment. I don't, I get to pick.
0: Oh, the classic line, fences make for good neighbors, (laughs) right? And I'll show you a funny uh, visual here, okay? I call Mm -hmm. it the blob. I don't know how much it'll show up on the screen. The basic idea is that uh, we start out with a relationship that's this big in terms Mm -hmm. of its possibilities, and then various things happen that we start to carve out. And we do what I call it, it's one of the chapters in the book, resize the relationship. If only inside your own mind, but often out there in the world as well. And you end up, basically, it's the blob. You, you start out oh, yeah. with a giant circle. Yeah. It almost looks you, like
1: the world. For people who are listening, it looks like a big globe, like a circle with like continents yeah. on it, kind of. Yeah. And
0: yeah. And That's right. And uh, what is left is the size of the relationship. So maybe you start seeing that friend only once a month, or you have lunch twice a year. Because, you know, honestly, weekly was just too much. Or you arrange to no longer do carpool with them, you know, or you make sure that when you're going to visit the in-laws, you stay at a motel nearby and you have your own transportation. Or you just stop talking about politics with them because it just does not go well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, whatever it might be. Uh, that's resizing the relationship. Uh,
1: okay. So you're kind of editing out the edges a little bit.
0: Yeah. So you're it's just like basically, the
1: negative space. So I see what I was looking at with the circle As I'm trying to like describe this to people who are listening. is yeah. like you have a circle. It's almost like a circular sandwich and you're nibbling out parts of the crust and you're working. Yeah, that's exactly
0: it. right. You're chewing it. it out. So what remains? And then that, that part that remains is the ways that you can have a good relationship. Like, you, maybe you realize that, you know, in certain settings, if your mother-in-law can ever get you alone, you're just going to get a dump truck of unwanted advice. So you just make sure you're never alone with her, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and think about anticipating settings where that might happen. Uh, or um, maybe you're in a different situation with your partner, where you start to realize that uh, with your partner... They are just not ever going to, um, you know, the five love languages kind of material. They're just not ever going to be deeply psychologically minded and intimate sharing. On the other hand, they really are, they want to be a great parent to your children and they want to be a really strong partner, particularly around what they do. They're not going to give you a lot of that emotional support, but they're going to do a lot of stuff. So you just sort of give up about the emotional support. You ask for it, you do what you can, you try to get it. But after a while, you just, you get in reality about what other people are capable of. You know, it's that line, you've, you know, a, a distance in the service of attachment. Sometimes we take a step back to be able to maintain a connection. Yes. And then, you know, maybe there's some grieving around that, like, I wish I could get more of that. Um, Sometimes people, you know, they, they limp along in their marriage up to a certain point. Maybe the kids are stabilized in high school or beyond, and then they make some fateful choices, but you know, you can still have something be really good. You can preserve relationships with people that are really good in terms of where you connect, in terms of what still remains in the blob.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up grief because I don't. I think there's no way to etch out that shape, you know,
0: etch yeah. out parts
1: of a relationship without grieving the loss of either the fantasy of that person being able to do that thing or be that yeah. person for you. Um, or perhaps actually the loss of what they once were able to and currently can't for whatever reason. That's like, right. so you might yeah. have lost something very real. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that like there's grief there, Yeah, And sometimes I just kind of like, there's like the not, it's not black and white, right? It's not like Mm -hmm. if you can't get your needs met by a person, the relationship is doomed. Sometimes relationships are complicated and they're messy. And there is some really good stuff that's worth, you know, preserving the relationship in honor of those great things. And you have to kind of radically accept that it won't look as perfect as you wish. And also if it's really not working for you to be able to say like, we have to do something different or we can't be what we currently are. Mm. And I think that it's, it's hard, it's messy. And, and also it's very empowering to know like you're allowed to do that. Either way, you're allowed to make it, make something not great work. And you're allowed to make something not great. Say, I'm, I don't want to do this.
0: And, and along the way, uh, and this is also in the book, uh, like part two, what I found is really remarkable It's that myself, if someone has mistreated me, let's say, and you're dealing with grievances, they let you down. It's real. They let you down or they they did something else. Uh, I don't get to peace about it unless I've done two things along the way. One is I've sorted out what, if anything, I'm actually responsible for myself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the answer is zero. But it's because I'm entirely open to and really interested in getting at what's my own responsibility in the matter. Not even that I did something bad, but okay, I could be more skillful going forward. This Mm -hmm. is how my well-intended words had a negative impact on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other thing that I have to do before I get to freedom is to find compassion for that other person, Mm -hmm. to find some fundamental sense it's not approval or agreement. It's not forgiveness. I'm not giving up my rights. But some feeling for them as a suffering being, like other beings. And so even when we're talking about resizing, what's really cool and remarkable, in part because it's it's enlightened self-interest, because mm-hmm. it protects us and feeds us, is to rest in a kind of unconditionally good heart that sees others clearly stands up for your own needs, while not letting hatred or ill will or rancor or meanness, you know, invade Mm -hmm. and remain. It may arise, you know, we're big monkeys, you know, Uh stuff happens, but it doesn't have to invade us and occupy us, right? We don't have to fuel it. We don't have to identify with it. And then your own warm heartedness becomes almost like a Wi-Fi base generator, a field (laughs) that others move through that it's not it's not about them it's about you retaining a fundamental inner freedom to rest yeah. in a basically good heart which feeds you and protects yeah. you helps you become less stressed and upset and increases your odds of getting a good result from that other person when you finally do talk about something
1: i that is so profound and so much permission giving and empowering, right? Like how much power we have to create our little Wi-Fi field, to create, to like do that work for ourselves. So we're not beholden to the the moods and the behaviors of others. We, We really do own what we experience.
0: Yeah, that's right. Wow.
1: That's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad you came on and like, this was such a, such a great, conversation. Like I really enjoyed talking with you about this. I cannot wait for people to read this book.
0: Oh, same, same.
1: If people want to learn more about your work or find this book or other, you've written like so many amazing books. It's number
0: seven somehow.
1: (laughs) So prolific. Um, how can they, how can they find more
0: from you. Oh, that's kind. You'll probably put something in the show notes. Just Google my name, Rick Hansen, S-O-N. Uh, go to rickhanson.net. Almost everything I do is freely offered. And the stuff that's for sale has scholarships for anyone with financial need. That's sort of a fundamental stance. And um, so you get to see all kinds of great stuff, including the material that I developed uh, around uh, for parents, really parenting from the same page, uh, you know, ways of raising kids in different ways, ways of taking care of yourself, taking care of your own health, you know, so just go to RickHanson.net and uh, you'll see it all there. Yeah. It's been great talking with you. I'm so glad we did this, Sarah.
1: Me too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast with Dr. Rick Hansen. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream the show and leave a rating and a review. And to thank you for your support, I have a free gift that will help you combat one of the most prevalent issues parents are struggling with today burnout. My Banish Burnout weekly calendar separates your needs into three different categories cognitive, emotional, and physical. And it helps you track exactly what is serving to fill your tank so you can be more intentional about your self-care strategies. And as a bonus, I've also added a kid's version, so you could teach your kiddos how they can prioritize their needs and learn to refuel their tanks right from the start. If you would like me to send these calendars right to your inbox, just email a screenshot of your securely attached podcast review to info at drsarabren.com. That's info at drsarahbrenn.com. Thanks so much, and don't be a stranger.